If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. making extraordinarily inappropriate jokes while swearing like a sailor? Then the Getting Off podcast is for you. Hosted by us. Two real live criminal defense attorneys. Getting Off explains the legal reasons behind outcomes in famous trials and tackles tough topics in the world of crime and criminal justice. We use firsthand sources like trial transcripts, police reports, crime scene photographs, and appeals briefs to give you the information that the public rarely hears about when it comes to the criminal justice system. Our podcast isn't about carefully crafted musical interludes or obsessively edited narratives. Instead, it is a no-holds-barred, unedited, raw legal presentation by two lawyers that have spent over a decade each in the trenches. Previously covered cases include Casey Anthony, Michael Peterson, Jody Arias, and more. Subscribe to the Getting Off podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Do that to get off now. season premiere i never i never thought that i would be in a place where i got to say that i am doing a mid-season premiere i thought those days were long gone Um, nope here we are even though hopefully we get this one out in january no we're going to it's going to happen and like i just want to give us a high five a virtual high five so we don't throw all of our recording just kidding sorry i couldn't help myself (laughs) that we like put out more as many episodes in our First half of our second season as we did in our whole first season. Yes. Great. So we're going to, we're committing to each other. We're going to hold each other accountable. Okay. Accountability partners. Yeah, exactly. Uh, for being productive, which is really exciting. Um, so, um, what did you do on your Christmas break? Um, I went to Belgium for two weeks oh, wow. for Christmas and for New Year's. And it's so funny. Every time I tell someone, they're like, oh, do you have family there? And it was literally just a 
bucket list thing we've wanted to do. Probably since I saw the movie in Bruges. I'm like, that is adorable in winter. Wait, wait stop. But, but let's just hold on. <laughs> Full stop. The movie in Bruges is about hit hitmen hit who right. kill each other brutally. And there's just one scene of violence after another in the middle of this gorgeous, quaint town, right? right? This, it's, it's medieval. It's a perfectly preserved medieval town. And it was everything – I wanted it to be from, you know, seeing it in the movie and then, of course, researching for over a year. And Christmas time there was just awesome. We had a adorable Airbnb, Christmas markets, hot cider, hot wine, skating, uh, horse-drawn carriages. Come on. Yeah, every awesome. every picture that you posted and sent back to me looks like it was photoshopped. Yeah, it was, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. It was cold, um, but hey – you know, two weeks, I put up with it. That's so, cool. Yeah. What about you? Uh, you know, I didn't really intend to do it, but I guess I'm going to give myself a um, – uh, I'm going to try and reframe it positively that I gained back half of everything I lost on the keto diet over the summer because I ate so much. Only half? Only That's half. Um, no, it was low-key. It was like really yeah. wonderful, wonderful low-key um, Christmas this year, uh, which Good. was great. Good. Um, so yeah, that was good. good. But we're glad to be back. Work is great, and yeah, it's nice to get back into the routine. And but I'll tell you what did happen that is totally your fault and is wonderful is that <laughs> we got hooked up with another podcast that is mind blowing. Um, and because I'm, I have this sort of I'm not going to say OCD because I don't want to diminish people who actually have OCD. But when I I want to start something from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And you sent me a link to these great guys uh, and people. If you don't know them, you're going to be hearing about them a lot on this podcast. Uh, they have a podcast called Getting Off, and it is two defense attorneys that work together and have been adversaries in court before. Right. And they're in Minnesota, Wisconsin. No, no, they're in Madison, Wisconsin. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, they are so freaking smart. It's mind blowing. Yeah, we, engaging, we first mentioned them in our incel. Um, Did we? episode okay. because they had done a little bit of research and I suggested that you listen to theirs. But that was kind of our first um, – that's how I discovered them. And I think I said they're kind of the attorney version of us. Yeah. <laughs> but I'll tell you, I, I'm going through this whole um, uh, evolution with them. So I had – I couldn't start at episode 147 because they're so freaking prol- oh prolific. It's I amazing. Know. I can't believe they put out so many. I know. But I started from the beginning – and I had this whole – and I, I tend to do this because this is the way my weird brain works is I would like – these are the smartest people I've ever listened to. I know nothing. I thought I knew about the court system because I'm in it a lot. But to hear the intricacies and the way they perceive things and then they have to switch gears and they have to switch this perspective and that perspective, I was thinking I'll, I'll never get this. But it's fascinating. Then you listen to like four or five episodes and it's like, oh, I get it. Oh, I get it. And then another couple of episodes, like, oh, I could, I could be an attorney. I mean, I, I get this. I could totally be an attorney. It's not and so hard. It's not so hard. And then <laughs> the next episode, I'm a complete dumbass. I did not see that coming. These people are geniuses. I would right. never be able to do that. Nick just says something brilliant and uh, yeah, unbelievable. Just is just like as quick as a whip. I mean, it's just awesome. Yeah, I would. I mean, they're they're 
I mean, they're the kind of people that if you needed defense attorneys, these would be the people that are because they're so passionate about the work. But I got to tell you, I wouldn't want to be on the receiving end of them as prosecutors either. Nope. Mm -mm. No. But it's really interesting because the title of their podcast, The Getting Off Podcast, they – Obviously, you know, getting people off from their crimes, but they've also specialized in sexual offenders, just like we have, just in an, obviously a different arena. But um, I think that was neat to kind of find out about them. But they'll be at the uh, True Crime Podcast Festival in Chicago also. Yeah, we're so, going to hang out with them. We're going to hang yes, out with them. We are. Um, so that was really cool. Um, I learned more about the Aaron Hernandez case than. I had any clue. I mean, there was they had access to a lot of information that I was not familiar with at all, oh, good. which was I have fascinating. To to that one. Um, so that was great, um, and I'm going to continue with them. But the, I'm telling you, there's so many good podcasts out there; it's difficult. And then we went down the rabbit hole on this week's <laughs> topic, sure. which is long haul trucker serial killers. Yeah. Yeah, which, a topic we've been wanting to do for a really long time, um, and literally up until. A couple hours ago, I found another book in my office that I'm like, oh, this gold mine right here. And you were sending me texts today with mm-hmm. more video clips of like, oh, wait, this kind of changes yeah. our perspective on what we'll talk about a little bit later. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that came up for me about this particular subject is I remember when the Dexter series came out and my friend Bob was one of the producers um, of the show on, uh, was it Showtime? Mm-hmm. And he, I think he developed it as well. But we were laughing about it because, you know, that series is based on a couple of books and the the character is set in Miami. And, okay, it's like, well, there's – this is a serial killer who kills serial killers. But then suddenly it's like, okay, how many damn serial killers are there in Miami? (laughs) Is it just not safe for anybody to go out of their house because there are so many killers? And that's what – like once I kind of shifted in perspective, like it became a little less interesting to me even though – Don't think about it too hard. It's just entertainment. I know. But I'll tell you what snapped it back into focus was this subject because when you sent me the graphic of the FBI map Mm -hmm. of how many Mm -hmm. serial – trucker serial killer murders – had occurred across the U.S. It's it's like a spl- it's like a blood splatter. And it, that map is old. I mean, oh. I can't even imagine what it is. And it, it, you know, what? I posted that on Instagram, and as soon as I did, someone was like, "Where can I get this map? <laughs> Where is this information?" Um, but the, I was very excited for this because I feel like this kind of brings me back to one of the topics that really got me truly interested in true crime. Of course, it, it hones back to serial killers, which you know, obviously many people are interested in and brings us back to the, the huge interest in true crime and the success of so many podcasts and TV shows and, and everything. So I feel like it brings it kind of back to my roots um, because early before I was even a police officer – I think I may have talked about this before, but I I snuck into a training with FBI profiler Roy Hazelwood. I was a police cadet, so I did technically work for a police department, but the training was for— You didn't just stumble in from a nightclub or something? No, 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 no. (laughs) What's going on here? Oh, my God. Um, God, I I probably did sound like that back then. Well, I mean, I didn't sleep a whole lot. Then I would party and then go to work. But no, I I was working for a police department um, as their evidence and property technician. And I sat with the detectives. And so the two sex crimes detectives sat in front of me. 
and they were talking about this training. And I'm like, I want to go to this training. Oh, that's and great. I was able to submit my stuff. They didn't ask if I, you know, they just asked, where, what department do you work for? Put it down. <laughs> so I wasn't a sworn officer or anything and got into this training. And um, as I, I, I actually put a, a couple photos up on Instagram today of the book, which is the one that I found in my office today. Um, but Roy Hazelwood was just amazing, so charismatic, such a lovely man in person, and just a wonderful instructor and bringing these stories to life. And the book is called The Evil That Men Do. Um, and there's some well-known stories in there and there's some not so well-known stories in there, but I remember him particularly talking about probably at the time, one of the most well-known, um, serial killing truckers, long haul truckers, and the pictures and the stories were just horrific. And, um, that really stuck in my mind. So, um, you know, we kind of have that like 1999, and then I don't know if you remember at internship when we had to each of the interns we had to do a presentation on some forensic topic. Do you remember that? I don't. Was that the beginning or was it half, no, it was halfway that was in, through? Right? No, I think we had to do that one at the beginning, and then we had to do one specifically on the type of population we were working on later. But I don't remember what I did. I don't remember what you did either. I know Sarah did that one on like the disorder where people think bugs are like – what was that? It was uh, morgulons. Oh, yes. But here's oh. the thing. And Sarah – look, we had a colleague. We have a, a colleague. I ended up working with her in state prison. Brilliant woman. One, I mean just smart as a whip. Great mm-hmm. psychologist. And she she got excoriated by the morgulons community because her her – it was this idea that – your body is um, – there are parasites or something that are mm-hmm. coming out of your skin and there's like these lupus-like symptoms and Lyme disease-like symptoms. And unfortunately, the online community had all come together and they were like scrubbing themselves with steel wool. I mean there was a real oh. pathology to it. And, and Sarah came from this perspective of like, no, there's there's no underlying science for it. And she did – she's a researcher. I mean mm-hmm. she did really good mm-hmm. work. But isn't it interesting? It's now what eleven, twelve years later, mm-hmm. they freaking found the underlying biological basis for morgulons. Isn't that crazy? So some people actually have it. I think yeah. um, Joni Mitchell. Yes, Joni yes. Mitchell literally has. Yeah, that was a couple years ago. Yeah, and and but you think about all these people that were going to their doctors, and the mm-hmm. doctors like, yeah, you need to take some antipsychotics. That's yeah. all that's wrong with you. There's so many. Medical disorders God, like what that. What did I do? What did on? you do? I don't remember. I remember. So there were four of us. I remember you guys all did like these really, you know, <laughs> psychological. Sounds funny. Um, it, it, presentations, and here I was, like this cop taking a leave of absence to finish grad school, and I said, "Oh." In 2007, the FBI did a symposium on serial killers. I'm going to do an overview of that report. <laughs> it was like not even psychological, but it was related it to was what forensic. we. It yeah, was forensic. It was super absolutely. interesting. Um, so, and you can look up this report if you just Google FBI serial killer symposium 2007. Um, they published um, a report on it, but basically they had experts from the fields of criminology, homicide investigators. Uh, um, BAU agents, all from all over the world, mostly United States, but they all came together 
to discuss very various myths about serial killers. Um, they actually wanted to come up with a definition because there had been so many different definitions thrown around, plus, you know, mass killer, spree killer, all of that. Um, and basically they just had these kind of breakout groups to kind of talk about all this. Um, and one area they discussed was the highway serial killers. Um, and by the way, the definition they came up with was ser- of serial murder is the unlawful killing of two or more victims by the same offender in separate events. So it was very simple. Um, and go ahead. Go ahead. I, I'm not the one who named this, but I, and, and I'm not being facetious. I'm not trying to be funny, but isn't it a little weird that like you, you kill two people on your serial killer? Well, I mean, I don't know it has what the to be actual separate events, so it can't be you like murder two family members at the same time. But are then there? But then they're saying that it's related <laughs> to the motivation, right? So it's not. Um, they don't even go that deep. Yeah. See, that just seems so, weird. I mean, I don't. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it's not important, but it just seems. Yeah. I think it was. It was more to um, probably for statistical purposes to be able to uh, calculate all that nationwide in an attempt to sort of share data oh, okay. and then you can sort of break it down later. Like VICAP, you can put tons of different. And VICAP stands for? Um, the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program. Wow. So I'll talk about that a little bit later. Okay. But um, but yeah, so they had this symposium and that's what I did my presentation on in 2008 or nine, whenever that was. But in 2000, I'm going to do a little bit of history to this. So there is this. Uh, project called the the Highway Serial Killings Initiative, so HSK initiative, and that is through the FBI. Um, but essentially, in two thousand three, two thousand four ish, crime analysts from around the country. It's when you know hiring crime analysts to sort of predict where crime was going to happen really became its own thing. Um, but they started noticing that bodies were being dumped along major interstates. Um, and particularly in Oklahoma, there's two interstates that come together there. I think it's the I-30, I-35 and the I-40. So they're like the two biggest interstates of the country kind of intersect. Um, so people, truckers from all over are coming through there all the time. Um, but essentially, the, a significant amount of bodies are being found along the roadside, and large number of these victims are being identified as sex workers, um, transients that are transient women that are frequenting truck stops. You know, kind of using that as a home base either to um, shower or eat or use a restroom or whatever. Um, but all of their main suspects end up starting to be truckers. So they're looking at. What it sounds like what they're able to identify is that the victims, the, the vast majority are women, obviously, mm-hmm. and probably 99.9% women right. are living what we would consider high-risk lifestyles. Sure. And I know a lot of people take offense to that terminology. High risk kind of feels victim blaming, but I don't. I, I don't I, look. That's at not it the way in, I mean it. Exactly, I mean, like, I mean, exactly. yeah. And we. Okay, I'm glad you said that because yeah. that's not what we were trying to. You know, there. And by the way, one of the videos that we watched in preparation for this clearly indicates, as many people are starting to find out now, that women that are working in this trade, um, and I have, you know, I'm not saying any judgment about the sex trade in, in itself, un, unless it is 
sex trafficking, which is a sure. different. These people, sure. these women are victimized. And it's not just that they're, that some of them might be minors. There are adults that are sex trafficked as well right. that have been forced into this. They might be immigrants. They might be people who are, you know, have been literally brainwashed, sure. you know, because oh, they've yeah. been in it so long. But when we use the term risk, we're talking purely numbers because you have a number of factors about you. It puts you at higher risk. It's not whose fault is it or right. how did you end up with those factors. Or that you're choosing, you know, there's yeah. a difference between choosing, you know, feeling that you have a choice versus I have to do this because I don't know what other choices I have right. or I don't have any other choices. Sure. Anyway, that was my rant. No, that's okay. Um, but so they're looking at this and they're saying, well, how ideal, right? These suspects that are truckers have a vast uh, pool of victims. Women are getting in their trucks. <laughs> um, it, they have plenty of opportunity to then release these women alive or dead anywhere. Who, who was the one who was the the one in studying for this that was the first the first trucker that actually just like kind of sat back, laid back, leaned back on a couch and started giving them all the information. Is it, it's all there by the way, this goes along with <laughs> News of the Weird, which is a website that's been around forever, <laughs> has a regular thing about how many killers have triple names and go by their triple names. And it's always like Barry Dwayne right. somebody. Right. So all of these people. Um, well, it's because they have such common names. So that's true. when the police or the press put it out, they put their middle name so that to differentiate them. Oh, OK. But, but this guy. I don't was think they really go by Bobby Lee, <laughs> okay. whatever. No offense to any Bobby Lees Hi, out Bobby there. Lee. In fact, I hope we have some Bobby Lees. But um, one of the things that this this first um, gentleman said, who was giving the information to the investigators, was, "I don't have to hunt. They come to me. Yeah, I'm 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 parked in the lot, and they're knocking on my door sure. because that's their trade. Sure, sure. No, it's it's super creepy. There's there's a lot. There's a few that have been um, very transparent with how this all goes down. Um, so in two, 20 – no, 2000 – I show 2009. Why do I have that written as 2009? Um, it's got to be earlier. But the FBI ends up starting the Highway Serial Killings Initiative, one, to raise awareness that this is happening, mm-hmm. um, and two, so their services by the profilers can be used by local agencies in another way. Um, sometimes local agencies don't know – hey, should I call a profiler and run this case by him? So this was helping sort of say, hey, we also offer this service, uh, cross-jurisdictional, it might be helpful. So that's how they came up with this um, this initiative. It does fall under the VICAP uh, unit of the FBI, which does a lot of their analysis. So VICAP, uh, just to run that down real quickly, it's it's a database Um, It's a database that is generally for homicides, kidnappings, um, and missing persons where any local agency can get into the system, put in information about their crime, and it will link similarities across the country. It's fantastic. It's not required. So that, there's so much data missing. That's mind-blowing to it's me. It's mind-blowing, yeah. That's, that's one of the big problems in law enforcement and even uh, mental health care is, oh, sure. you know, it's one of the things that happened with the last presidential administration was, um, which was really great, which was the institution of requiring um, 
electronic health records across all right. medical. And now if we could get the same thing going for mental health, and obviously we want to protect pi- privacy, mm-hmm. but you know, being but able it, to yeah. access that information. And, and in law enforcement, one of the big complaints is that in a big city like Los Angeles, we have so many different police par- departments and none of the systems talk to each other. Right. So it's right. this archaic... Like uh, two cops on phones, on having trying to have a conversation, figuring out the spelling of the name. Well, is this the same uh-huh. John Doe? Are we talking about the same guy? Right, right. And they they call that linkage blindness. Oh, I didn't it? know there was yeah, a term. Yeah, there's a term for it. Wow. Um, but as of 2016, the Highway Serial Killings Initiative has identified more than 750 people whose bodies were found. And has identified 450 potential suspects. Wow. Yeah. So, wait. So, out of those 450 uh, potential suspects, mm-hmm. that's – there's no uh, – have there been charges brought against them? Some. Okay. Yeah. So, that's yeah. like – we have – what I think the stat is that there's 25 identified that are incarcerated right now. I don't know. I didn't see that stat. That's that's what I saw. I but it was old. So, it, there up. may have been – there may be more now. Okay. Okay. So that's that's what we're talking about here. I'm, I want to um, talk a little bit about what you were just saying with, with some people that have come forward and talked about how um, common – I don't know if common is the term – but how this all actually happens in real life. And, you know, unless you catch someone and they're very forthcoming with the cops, you, which is not often – um, but we are dealing with, you know, some fairly narcissistic, narcissistic people that want to brag about their crimes too. So we have a few of those that, um, have talked. Um, did you watch the killing season, the documentary on A&E docuseries? It was, a, it was actually about the, uh, Long Island serial killings. Uh, no, that's okay. in the queue. Oh, my gosh. My queue is so long. Oh, my God. Okay. So this came out in 2016. It was excellent. Um, There's also a fantastic book called Lost Girls by Robert Kolker that is actually being turned into a Netflix movie. So you bet we will have an episode on that. Um, But I read the book. I loved the book because it was all about the victims, you know, talking about these women and what their lives were like and about – their families in the aftermath. And, um, yeah, it's just it, – it was great. But in episode six of the killing season, the documentarians start looking at the phenomenon of serial killer truckers basically as a possible kind of suspect pool to the Long Island serial killings. Um, they talk to women who you know are sex workers at these truck stops. They call them lot lizards, right? Um, they even speak with a convicted – Highway serial killer who really gives some terrifying insight into this. Um, they talked to him from prison. Again, I take this with a grain of salt because you give someone like this a microphone and a platform. and Well, that becomes very clear as we start to talk about Jesperson later on yeah. in, in this episode is that the level of narcissism that's in this particular kind of serial killer – I mean, of all the ones I looked and reviewed at for this, there was only one that turned himself in. He even took a body part into the police station with him Mm. because he wanted to tell on himself. He wanted to say, I've been doing this. 
You he had some sort me. of remorse. He had some remorse, yeah. and that is incredibly rare. Yes. The only remorse that exists in these other guys, and and the narcissistic uh, focus on the cr- taking credit for the ones that they yes. did yes. engage in is it's mind-boggling. Yeah. yeah. It's that, so that's why I, I kind of take this with a grain of salt. This guy's name is John Robert Williams. Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Is he the one you were talking about? Yeah, he was. So um, he was a long-haul trucker. He was 28 years old when he was uh, captured, and he claims to kill – that to have killed more than 30 women along Interstate 40. Um, so they start talking to him from prison and, yeah, just very blatantly he says, yeah, that's what that's what we all talk about all, out there. We know it's all happening. Um, I think most alarming was that he says, yeah, I, I know of more serial killers. There was actually seven of us working together. Well. And I, uh, two of them were female. Five male, two female. So he said they they essentially traded women amongst themselves. Um, they even had a name for themselves. It, they use an Apache term, um, Nedahay. I don't know if I'm saying that right. I tried to Google it. I could not find it. Uh, but it means killers. Okay. Did, did anybody ever cor- other than him corroborate that? I have no idea. It was just in the docuseries and they didn't take it much further. Okay. I have to figure that so. out. Can you figure it out? I'm going to figure and it out. And let us know? I'm going to let you You're know. just going to crack the case? <laughs> <laughs> Just like that, huh? With my with my paid subscription to Spokio looking yes. people up. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, so that that was pretty chilling to hear. I think um it yeah, like you said, when they're they're bragging about them just hey, I don't have to hunt, they're knocking on my door. You know, it, it's not necessarily um grabbing people off the street and throwing them in their truck. It's they're coming to them and they're willingly, you know, whether they're, you know, back in the day, it was more of like a hitchhiking scenario, like what we're going to talk about with um, the next guy or they are sex workers. It, it really is kind of the perfect crime, though. I mean, you have these truckers that have a mobile home where they don't need an alibi because their job is to be alone and be mobile and they have a pretty soundproof compartment to just pick people up in and drop them off wherever they want. Yeah. It's terrifying. I, well, I think the thing it looks like, it's especially from some of the, the video clips and the, uh, the segments that I was looking at in preparation for this, the thing that has changed the landscape is the increase in availability of DNA evidence sure. because for the long, it seems like for the longest time, especially with, um, has it been Rhodes? Mm-hmm. Is it Rhodes? Robert Ben Rhodes? Robert Ben Rhodes is that there was no identifying. Right. Um, and then when people, they were able to get DNA evidence and start matching it, that seems to have changed the yeah. whole landscape. Oh, I, I, which I think is, um, just the way that it's going to be with serial killers in general. Well, everybody's signing up for 23andMe. Heck yeah. And that's how, they, you know, they uh, caught uh, a murder recently yeah. was through 23andMe. Yeah. I can't wait. Yeah. You just want to live in 1984 <laughs> wanna... who are all being oh, monitored and chipped. And... <laughs> I don't care. It's kind of going to – it's probably through your Apple Watch there anyway. Maybe. Um, so let's talk about Robert Ben Rhodes. Yeah. So this is the case that Roy Hazelwood actually highlighted when I did the training – um, and like I said, it was just it, it, he showed a lot of images in his uh, trainings, which 
for a uh, young person interested in true crime. I was shocked yet fascinated by all of that. Um, but yeah, it, it really stuck with me, um, some of the visuals especially. So a little bit about Rhodes. So he was born in 1945 in Iowa. Um, he was first just raised by his mother because his father was in the Army. Um, but eventually his father came home from abroad, was a very strict authoritarian, um, and kind of an unremarkable childhood. I mean, he was involved in sports in school, not a ton of behavioral problems, just kind of unremarkable. Then at 18, he joins the Marines, um, and then his father is accused of molesting, I believe, cousins. I think Roy Hazelwood's book says that it's cousins, a boy and a girl, and then his father commits suicide after he's accused. So Rhodes then start to ha- starts to have a lot of problems in the military, obviously a bit affected by his father's death um, and is dishonorably discharged. I think he committed theft or something and gets kicked out. So, And, and later Rhodes tells a couple people that his father also abused him, um, whether uh, sexually or physically, he doesn't specify, and he never really goes into it with anyone. So he kind of alluded to it with his first wife and to cops, but... So once again, it seems like we're kind of circling back around to not really being able to tell about the veracity mm-hmm. of these self-reports mm-hmm. because it's all coming from people that are so narcissistically inclined. Yeah, but we know he was, he was, his father was accused at least of, you know, um, it's actually performing, performing lascivious acts on a 12-year-old girl is what I had as a, mm. an actual offense. Um, but anyway, Rhodes goes on to attend a little bit of college. He drops out. He applies for a job as a police officer. Oh, yeah. Um, That seems to be pretty common. (laughs) But not hired. Thank goodness. Um, So the psych psych (laughs) screen worked that time. Right. Yes, it did. Um, So he's married in 1968. He has a son. He gets divorced by 1972. And he ends up marrying a couple more times. And I'm going to talk about... Um, the most significant marriage at the end of this because I think it's it's really interesting. Um, but he works in stores and supermarkets, restaurants, and then finally lands a job as a, a long-haul truck driver. Um, it, a lot of people account that he blew money on prostitutes, sex workers, um, and developed a, an interest, an extreme interest in S&M at some point. So, again, there's, there's not really an origin story of that, even though we're going to talk about how he um, treated his wife before some of the more – actually, I'm just going to talk about that now because then I'm going to get into the murders. But So I'm going to open up my book by Roy Hazelwood here because I couldn't find anything on the wives at all. And then I remembered I had this book and I thought, you know what? I know there's something in there. And – as part of Roy Hazelwood's research with the FBI, FBI profiling unit, he actually went out and interviewed and um, did a survey of 20 female subjects, um, which he calls compliant victims, or they were the partners or spouses of these offenders. I hate that. I really, really hate that term. Yeah. I'm just having, I'm having a visceral, visceral reaction to Why? it. Why? Compliant victims. I mean, it just it it goes back to that high risk lifestyle thing. Like yeah. compliance means you're you know implies you're agreeing to it. I mean, 
Right. And yeah, yeah. And and he does a really good job of talking about sort of the psychological makeup of these women and um, what he kind of expected when he went to meet them and that they were naive but intelligent, pretty. You know, they weren't these meek little, um, you know, dormouse, passive women that could be told what to do. Like he kind of thought in his mind. He even talks about like his his misconceptions about that. Um, But that, yes, there is a specific psychological makeup that if they had not been partnered up with this person, would they have been out killing people? No. (laughs) No. No. Yeah. I mean it comes down to – uh, compartmentalization, mm-hmm. you know, in any relationship, mm-hmm. I think, I mean, it's not, I think I know this, I mean, it's, we, we know this in about family systems and clinical work, that there are things that you choose to ignore. Yeah. And yeah, certainly if you're in a relationship as a compliant victim, bleh, I hate that word. Um, but if you're, <laughs> if you're in that position and you're working with a master narcissist, who's able to also um, lead a double life, which they're very good at, mm-hmm. and they're compartmentalizing and marginalizing and, you know, partitioning off so many factors, then then they're giving a blank slate. The, the person on the other end doesn't have anything, oh, well, you know, I guess he just keeps to himself. Right, mm-hmm. right. And I think specifically these were women who were involved with sexual sadists. So that's its own special, right. you know, category of even – psychopathy or serial killer or whatever that that's that's its own special (laughs) thing um but Rhodes was last married to a woman by the name of Deborah and Deborah had um been divorced she had some kids from her previous marriage but she kind of talks about meeting him at a bar in Houston one night and he's dressed he's dressed as an airline pilot like in a uniform at this bar and she wasn't looking to hook up with him she danced with him um and then sees him again another night and he's dressed as a cowboy <laughs> and she's talking about so he's one of the village <laughs> he's, people he's two of the village people <laughs> Um, so, you know, she, she just kind of, this was a nice guy to dance with, kind of had a connection with him. They were really just what she termed friends at the beginning. Um, and at one point he finally admits, oh, I'm not a pilot. And she just kind of brushes it off. (laughs) Okay. Red flag number one. Why are you wearing a pilot's uniform to a bar? Um, but he, he starts sending her flowers. He calls her one night from the road and just professes his love to her when they haven't even talked about love and she was kind of reeled in by it so they move in together um she said he do we know what year this is 83 okay um she felt like he really made her feel like she was the only thing that mattered to him um like she was a queen so as their relationship progresses you know they they move in together they start going out she, she calls herself his paper doll. He would tell her exactly what to wear. He would tell her how to do her makeup and her hair. And she's like, okay, you know, he's, he's kind of spoiling me and buying me this. And sure, I'll do it. But this is also in hindsight when she says he really liked to be in control. And grooming, it seems like. Oh, so gosh. this is like he's beginning Classic. the grooming process to move her towards a sexual sadism. Yep. Right? Okay. Yep. <clears throat> um. So then, you know, kind of the next step is they're on a date one night and they're 
at some dance hall, and he slaps a handcuff on her wrist. And she flips out and is like, I don't appreciate that. Take it off. And he just kind of brushes it off. And, yeah, I mean, definitely like this testing, right? He keeps like, testing the, the boundaries, process. yeah. So then the next test is, hey, let's go to a swingers club. And she's so naive. She thinks country western dancing swingers and gets there and some lady sticks her hand up her skirt. And she's like, I'm not comfortable with this. Let's go. Um and then he gets her to dress up for Halloween. Was it while they were swing dancing? <laughs> yes, Scott. <So. laughs> That's exactly what it was. <laughs> he gets her he gets her um to go to a Halloween party dressed as slave and master, but he's actually the slave. Mm. And this is a very classic photo of him in his getup. I'll, I'll throw it up with on, a big uh, grin Instagram, with a big old grin um, and his big 80s serial killer sunglasses or sunglasses uh, eyeglasses. <laughs> um, they ended up winning first place costume contest, by the way. Um, and then one day this guy shows up on her door and he says, I'm the love slave that Bob ordered for you. <laughs> so weird, right? Like just maybe this will make my wife into what I'm into, just orders up a guy for her. She pushes him off her porch and says, get out of here. I don't want any part of this. And she's starting to this time find a lot of books and magazines, really violent pornography. Um, He's completely racking up the phone charges for uh, sex lines. Um, And then she sees this really strange connection between sex and pain. So she ends up developing some really – terrible, terrible headaches that make her really sick. So she would have to lay down in bed. And she said he would just lay down next to her and would get aroused by watching her suffer. Wow. And then she ends up diagnosed with lupus and she's hospitalized. And he climbs on top of her in the bed in the hospital and tries to have sex with her. Wow. As she's like incapacitated and suffering yeah. Okay, I haven't read any of this in the material. I'm I telling you, at. I could not find anything on the internet. This is all in Hazelwood's book. Wow. After he interviewed her. Um, so he then goes on the road for like three months or something. He's gone for a, a bigger span of time. And she starts realizing, I'm doing okay by myself. Like, I don't need him as much as I thought I did. So she starts, you know, when she talks to him, she starts being very self-assured, a lot less meek on the phone with him. And as soon as she sort of changes that, he sends what Roy says, an avalanche of love letters. And it's just like he he felt like he was losing control a bit and he's trying to reel her back in. They weren't married at this time. The second he gets home, he says, I want to marry you. And in two days, they get married. Wow. So... She says, you know, everything was absolutely about control. He could drink all night long and would never get drunk. Um, He had some sort of minor surgery, wouldn't take pain meds, did not like to be out of control. Um, So she's saying, you know, I don't don't know if he poured his drinks out or made it seem like he was drinking all night. Um, But finally, this all came to an end in October 1989, which is – just a, a date to sort of note as we talk about the rest of his offending, um, where he one night demands anal sex and she tells him no, and then he ends up beating her and raping her. And when they're when he's finished, she asks, she looks at him, she says, "Are you through?" And he said, "Yeah, 
and just wanders into the living room. So she said she kept a baseball bat under her bed, you know, for when he was gone, got her baseball bat, went in there, whacked him in the leg and says, now I'm through. And she packs up her bags and leaves. And she says as she leaves, she can hear him just destroying things in the house. So I I get hung up on details. Did she hit him in the leg to incapacitate him so that she could leave without him I don't think so. It didn't sound like that. It was more of like just acting out. Let's see. Oh, she hit him in the arm. Yeah. She went in, walked out, hit him in the arm and says, I'm through. And that was it. So, well, this is this is very interesting that you shared this because I know on in several episodes I've talked about sort of my um, one of one of my idols, uh, Kevin Cameron, the mm-hmm. social worker who is an absolute expert in threat assessment in Canada, and his model, his Vitra uh, model, and one of the things that we learn from this is that once again, and you'll hear me say this over and over again because it's Kevin, and I'm paraphrasing Kevin, is that no one ever snaps. The pathway to violence is an evolutionary process. And in so many school shootings, the data we look at, the school shootings, the the young men have a brief, um, very, a, a veneer of stability when they are in a relationship. And when that relationship inevitably ends, because it is not a stable relationship and usually the other person cannot tolerate it, when that happens, that's when mm-hmm. that's when then they are inflamed into whatever violent actions mm-hmm. they're going to take. And it sounds like, I mean, regardless of what happened, good for her for taking care of herself and preserving her life. But this is what the trigger was, yeah, right? Absolutely. It was to push trigger. him to the next level. Yes. Yes. So that happens in October 1989. Um, So I'm going to jump into now what I'm going to call the known killings of Rhodes because there is um, obviously speculation that this didn't like just start out of the blue, even though there seems to be a trigger with when we're looking at dates. This is not likely the first time that he decided to go out and do this. So in we're going to go to February of 1990, and in Houston, Texas, which is where Rhodes had uh, lived, he had an apartment um, that he kept there. Um, 18-year-old Nicole Tuttle oh, is yeah. standing in the middle of the street trying to flag down motorists. She is bruised and beat, and she has a dog collar around her neck. Um, she has her hair shaved really short and is just brutalized. And um, a passerby finally picks her up, takes her to police, where she says that she was picked up in California a week earlier when she hitched a ride from a trucker and that he had chained her inside of his cab for six days. Um, When she fell asleep, he handcuffed her to this chain that he had rigged to the ceiling of the back of his truck, um, whipped her, pierced her genitals, raped her, um, took her back to his Houston apartment where he let her shower, um, but raped her again while she was chained up, cut off her hair, and then he puts her back in the truck. And when he stops to go pick up um, a load of product that he was hauling, he forgot to chain her up again, and that's when she escapes. So she, the cops actually end up stopping a trucker when she's found 
have her do a field show up to see if it's the same guy, you know. So they put her in the police car, take her to where they have him stopped. And she says, no, that's not him. I just want to go home. I just want to go home. So she ends up, you know, obviously giving a description. They don't know who this person is. The same day that she escapes, Rhodes, we know, picks up um, 14-year-old Regina Walters and her teenage boyfriend near Pasadena, Texas. This is bad. So he picks them up. They're essentially, you know, hitchhiking. Um, in she, she's gone for a period of time. Her parents report her missing. And then on March 17th, her dad gets a call from a man on his, on his unlisted phone number. So the, the parents are divorced, but the man basically tells him Regina's in a barn with her hair cut off and hangs up and hangs up. Yeah. Well, the dad asks, is she dead or alive? And then he hangs up. Wait, I, I, I was watching the, I don't, does it, is your record say that she he says her hair is cut off? Because the the in the video clip it, it was it was even it was <clears throat> creepier. It was um, Regina's in a barn, and I've changed the way she looks. Originally, back in '99, I heard it. Regina's in a barn with her hair cut off. Okay, um, I've heard different because I cause so because when I heard that it yeah. was a it, you know it. it it was before they go into the the extent of the injuries, and I was thinking, oh my gosh, okay. did he like dismember her or oh, gotcha, disfigure gotcha. her or something? Right. And, um, maybe it was just the hair thing. It's still a horrible crime, yeah. no matter what. Yeah. And then you know, like the next, her mom's then contacted by a guy that says he wants to meet her at a, a local convenience store, and so she immediately tells the police, and they say, go ahead and go, and we'll set up a sting operation. Well, she waits there for hours and. You know, no one ever shows up. And he calls again and says he wants to meet her again. And the cops are just like, eh, you know, he's just toying with you guys. So, um, of course, this is 1990. It takes a while to trace phone calls and figure out what pay phones he's using. Um, so it, it never really leads to anything. So let's kind of fast forward to April of 1990 because this is when he gets caught. There's, there's some in between that we'll go back. But... In Arizona, a state trooper, God bless this guy, Mike Miller, he's so sweet on some of his interviews, but he spots a big rig parked on the highway that's not quite parked right. So he goes up to the big rig, to the, um, what do you call that part of front? The cab. <laughs> the cab. Yeah. You. He goes up there, you know, expecting to find the, the driver um, sleeping or something. And sees Rhodes in the back with this woman chained up, sobbing. So he stumbles upon this. Rhodes sees him. The girl starts screaming. Rhodes basically jumps out immediately, kind of prones out like on his truck, you know, in a pat-down position and says, oh, here, I have a gun in my back pocket. And is very compliant. And it's all consensual, right? Doesn't he try and frame it as we're we're just having sex play? It's all fine. He immediately does that axis to shift into taking control of the situation. Yeah. By the way, same thing that Jeffrey Dahmer did when Mm -hmm. Dahmer's um, victim escaped and was running down the street and the police believed it. Thank God it didn't happen this way this time. Uh, I know. So this cop says, "Uh -uh." uh-uh, handcuffs him, goes and puts him in his patrol car. Goes back to the woman in the truck and tells her, ma'am, there's a serious crime going on here. You have to hang tight. You're safe, but I'm calling for backup. You know, he's out there by himself. 
and she's like screaming her head off. You know, I picture Still Silence up. of the Lambs like, don't you leave me, you bitch, yeah. <laughs> type yeah. thing. And so he goes back to the patrol car just in time because Rhodes had like slipped his cuffs and was about to open the door and get out. And he cuffs him back up again and, you know – he he ends up getting booked for um, aggravated assault, sexual assault, unlawful imprisonment. Um, so it's interesting too, just the confluence of events that allowed he would have gone on killing. She would have died if that cop had not pulled over and taken the chance to investigate it. Gosh, because I know. the the what was the previous victim that survived that you were talking about? Tuttle, Nicole Tuttle. Okay, mm-hmm. Tuttle. The other thing that was left out of what you just said that I found was that. The, the cops didn't really handle her well. Like what they did not – you know, she told them, I'm afraid of him. He knows too much about me. And we find out later he kept these women for two, three, sometimes four weeks. Oh, yeah. He would get all of their family information. There was even a couple of times uh, the, the couple where he killed the, the boyfriend. Mm-hmm. He studied her um, journal. Sure. He studied everything in her journal, wrote little side notes about, you know, so this is a guy like, you know, obviously I think we've come a long way. I think um, law enforcement and investigation has come a long way. But if they had really tried to make that victim feel safe, then maybe they could have stopped it even before. Yeah. Yeah, possibly. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's he's kind of a ghost in the wind too. You know, yeah. it's hard to to identify these people. Um, so he gets arrested in Arizona. Deborah, the wife that I talked about, gets a phone call from him, and he's like, "Go to my apartment in Houston and throw everything away." <laughs> Thank God, the cops had called the cops in Houston. The Arizona cops had called the cops in Houston, and they got there first. So. Um, they find, I mean, torture tools, cameras, stacks of photographs of all these unidentified women, bloody towels. Um, they you know, found bloody towels bloody in towels. his mm-hmm. bathtub, mm-hmm. which they never go back into it in the documentary I watch. But like, did they, you know, I was like, well, did they take DNA samples? Could yeah, that are those sitting in a evidence a room evidence somewhere? Evidence somewhere. But Some like, basement. And they also showed a review of the porn he collected, which was really... The the um, um, the porn books, not the pornography with photos, the porn literature mm-hmm. that he had mm-hmm. was really what we – like old school stuff that you had to buy through, you know – Like mail order. Mail order or – Out of the country stuff. Right. So it's really brutal. Yeah. Really nasty stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so interesting, you know, especially with the work that we did with working with – um, child pornography offenders of yeah. how much effort it took back then to get some of that stuff. Whereas oh, yeah. now you just, you know, a couple clicks on the keyboard. Yeah. But the time and the effort and the money. Well, because the only method of transmission was mail and the the consequences of getting caught for sending sending or receiving that through the mail was the US so mail. enormous. Yeah. And... Um, you know, I mean, there's there's a spectrum of pornography, um, sure. and this is certainly on the far, far end of the spectrum yeah. that is really deviant and pathological. But now no one does mail order anymore. It's no. like they can get Everything horrific stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and hopefully they're being tracked the minute yes. they hit those oh, sites. Oh, I'm sure they are. Um, they even found in his apartment, you know, like 
kind of a, a rack to to tie women up on. Um, they found a big like a I said it was a stick, but it was a contraption that you would use to like draw and quarter someone yeah. essentially. Um, so all these torture devices. And he had a he had a garrote. He had mm-hmm. like a sort of a classic. Mm-hmm. Um, choking device that is known to be one of the most painful ways to kill somebody. So Kathleen Vine was the one that was rescued by this Arizona state trooper. Um, She said she'd been hitchhiking when Rhodes picked her up. She dozed off in the sleeping compartment um, and he chained her up. He told her that his name was Whips and Chains. This is his nickname and that he'd been doing this for years. Um, So he whipped her in the chest, the back, again, pierced her genitals, uh, forced her to walk through the desert on a collar and lead. And she says he was just getting off on the torture part the yeah. entire time. Um, so she actually was one of the victims. She suffered from probably some undiagnosed psychotic disorders. She had talked about, um, oh God, what was it? I don't remember. There was there was some um, unrealistic beliefs that she was talking about. And so the the... The prosecutors are like, okay, clearly, you know, she was a victim of this. She's not making this up. Is she problematic maybe to put on a witness stand? Can they pick her apart pretty well because she has this crazy talk also going on? Right. Yeah. Okay. That That's realistic. So um, they end up offering him a plea deal of six years. And and again, I mean, this is for aggravated assault, unlawful imprisonment. Right. The other stuff not is not. Murder yet, right. Something like that. So, um, so he ends up taking that. Because what hasn't happened yet is they have not discovered, discovered the body, right. any of the bodies. Right. Right. Although one with bloody towels. Bloody towels. In a bathtub. I know. Jeez. And all these photographs of all these women. Yeah. Um, so going back to an FBI agent actually does get called in to kind of look at this. Um, and he starts noting some of the signature stuff like the cutting of the hair, the piercing of the genitals. Um and then the victim that flagged down, the first victim I talked about, um, Tuttle, that flagged down the passerby, um, she ends up admitting, yeah, the guy they showed me on the side of the road was him. I was just too scared to say anything. Oh, I didn't So they could that. have identified him then. So she was too scared. She was too scared. Yeah, absolutely. Um, she, she admitted that later, like at the hospital. But And, and they had gotten his name. So... At some point, you know, uh, there's some balls dropped here. But um, so in in September 1990, this farmer has this old abandoned barn on his property um, in Illinois, and he's about to burn it down. Well, he's giving it to uh, the local fire department. Oh, to and they're going to gonna use it as a training. Gotcha. That's right. So he's kind of doing one last walkthrough and goes up to the loft. And sees human remains up there. Um, so he calls the police. Um, his barn was right near Interstate 70, so really close to the, the main interstate there. So they're able to determine from these remains um, that this is Regina Walters, the one that had um, hitchhiked with her boyfriend. And they identify her through dental records because she had, you know, this is almost a year later. She's pretty decomposed. There's just pretty much um, bones left. But they they find bale wire from hay from the loft that was used to strangle her. Um, 
they said that it was she was there were 14 twists one for each year of her life wow. essentially around her neck um and there are photos. They found photos of her that he had done this whole photo shoot, yeah. asking her to look scared. And then uh, one of the theories was like some of the, several of the photos are set up um, staged, and what do you mean, like staged? staged where she is oh, standing, like kind of shocked, putting her hand over her mouth. And then a couple of other photos are like he may have been starting to talk to her. To say no, I'm actually going to do these things too because yeah. she actually starts to look really frightened. Yeah. So they found the photos sorted into several groups. So the first picture of her were just nudes. Um, she was chained inside his truck cab. Her hair had been cut already. She was handcuffed. There was a choke chain around her neck. He had also shaved her pubic hair. Um, and then you could tell that her clitoris was also pierced. Um, and also attached to a chain. And then there's a second group of photos that's taken outdoors. Um, variety of poses, both dressed and undressed. Now her fingernails and toenails are painted bright red, and she has bright red lipstick on. And then the final set of pictures are the ones taken in the barn. So she's in a black dress. I think they bla- they found the black dress back at his apartment. It's the same one. Um, but yeah, there, those are the series of photographs of what you're talking about where it, it does look a little staged, like he's telling her these positions to be in, but then there are some that are just frozen terror in her face. Mm. Cause we know, I mean, we know that's where she was killed. So, so doesn't it seem like, I mean, you, you went in <laughs> deeper than I did on this one. Doesn't it seem like he's starting to get sloppy? I mean, he, he leaves, I mean, that's one of the recurring themes that you're, I know you're going to touch on is how many of these guys, as opposed to the larger group of serial killers or spree killers or mass killers, they are, like we said earlier, they're proud of their work, but they want to tell on themselves to an extent. Well, the whole, um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I was thinking about also the the calling of the parents and toying with them. But it's a risk, too. You know, I, I think it was definitely more of just part of the power and control. But it's also a risk of, are they going to trace this phone number? Or is there a camera here that's going to see who I okay. am? You know, it, it right. is. It's, it, I don't know if it's sloppiness or just risk-taking behavior oh, to good get point. more of a thrill. No, that's a very good point. And also, the, so building on that, the idea... But I think they go hand in hand. You get more risky, it's going to be more sloppy. Right. And then also, okay... So if these are not necessarily killers that have engaged in necessarily a complex strategy the way somebody outside a more difficult and challenging pool of victims. Like mm-hmm. this is mm-hmm. this is basically being at the carnival and picking up the goldfish yep. in the little stream, right? So they yep. they're not necessarily having to develop right. a level of skills that people outside this paradigm True. would. True. But now I'm wondering so are they are is this particular pathological makeup drawn to these careers that then allow them access to this pool of victims or and I'm probably talking out of my rear are they primed for whatever reason organically or TBI mm-hmm. you know some kind of frontal lobe injury mm-hmm. they get into this environment and then the environment stirs it up in them. 
I don't know, but um, I feel. But I to to build on that, I feel like again, sexual sadist and maybe the more deliberate, organized psychopath that you're talking about that builds relationships to get access to these victims. I think they're two different things. So I think the Got sexual it. sadist, Got it's it. a means to an end. Okay. Right? No, no, this no, is that's, what I, I You're need. absolutely right. Yeah. If I need if, – if going to swingers clubs and um, being involved in you know consensual like S&M groups is not enough – then I need a real victim and I need real pain and real torture and have that be legit to meet yeah. my deviant sexual need. Um, how's, what's the quickest way that I can do that? Yeah. So they're, they're, they do fall into a little bit more of a disorganized type, even though it's, it's sort of perfect setting for it. Yeah, it's it's still a lot of variables to account for. And I don't want to get too far afield, but every time you say swingers, I think about the, Vince Vaughn. That's a great movie. No, I think think about the restaurant deli on Beverly in around the corner from my apartment, and now I want ham steak. Is but that what it's called? It's or called do swingers. swingers hang out no, no, no. There? It's okay. just called swingers. It's like a total hipster. Oh, you want a ham like, steak? <laughs> although we complained about how, like, hey, they're shaving this pretty thin. Anyway, serial killer truckers and ham steak. Exactly. Mm. Um. Okay, so this ends up through sort of the signature um, things that we talked about, like the haircutting and um, the genitals being pierced, and then obviously them finding Regina's photographs. This all gets linked back to him. Right. Um, he finally folds after holding out for quite a long time and pleads guilty to killing Regina. So he was convicted in Arizona of for the six-year sentence of – um, kidnapping and imprisoning that one girl that lived. Then he gets convicted in Illinois of Regina's murder and gets sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. So he, they actually extradite him to Illinois to where he serves his sentence. In 2003, DNA links him to the murder of a Candace Walsh, who that same year, 1990, when he's doing all this killing, which he was about 44 years old at the time, um, October – go ahead. Is that when they also were able to convict him of the killing of Doug Zakowski? Was that the boyfriend of – Candace. Candace. Was that him? Yes. Okay. Um, so they yes, finally – Yes, they, got- they, they connect him to those um, of Candace's. So obviously his thing is when he picks up couples, he would kill the boyfriend right away, dump them, and then keep the woman for a okay. while. Um, so Candace Walsh and Doug Zykowski were a couple that were traveling from Georgia to Seattle when he picked them up. Um, eventually when they link him through DNA, um, he gets extradited to Utah in 2005 to be tried for those murders. But then the families actually end up requesting the charges to be dropped because he's already serving a life sentence without parole. They don't want to go through all of that. So he just gets sent back to Illinois. So he actually doesn't technically get convicted for Doug and Candace's murders. That's very interesting. I mean, well, they respected the family's wishes. Yeah, Um, Yeah. so um, he's currently 73 years old. He has killed possibly up to 50 women. Again, uh, kind that hasn't been linked like through DNA or anything definitive. But, you know, somebody that's, like you were saying, this organized, um, it's likely he has more victims. Yeah. And can we just talk about, like, his photographs? It's not 
Well, you the one the old pri- man ones. His prison photographs. You look at that. And you, I mean, he. What happened to his eye? Is he Popeye? I, I don't know. I mean, it's <laughs> he, it's not a good picture, but then it's not. Um, so yeah, I, I just as kind of a couple of notes, like psychological notes. I already talked about sort of sexual sadism. That so that sexual sadism is a paraphilia. If you've listened to our paraphilia episode and episode, I'm sorry, season one. We go through those, um, but he would absolutely fit into this category to the nth degree. Um, and it would definitely some psychopathy traits there. I don't know yeah. how high he would score. Probably pretty darn high, but... I would think... You're talking about that, talk about the hair? Yeah. Yeah, I think he'd mm-hmm. pretty high. His, you know, one of the hallmarks in the... Have we talked about that? Have we talked about that? I think we've talked about the hair psychopathy Oh, yeah, we checklist. did a whole okay. episode on so, psychopathy. Um, you know, one, if you read the Wikipedia page or, or any, any of the articles online are very good about it, including the controversy, which I think is good to know about, is they talk about sort of that hallmark of antisocial behavior, that glibness and superficial charm. And if any of you are out there interested in looking, you know, you can Google um, Rhodes and see several interviews um, on YouTube and different locations. And he is the epitome when he's caught being interviewed by the police, he is so glib and nonchalant and has an excuse for everything. Mm-hmm. And even when they go, we've got everything, we got the evidence, he's he's just like, oh, well, you got me. And then starts talking, you know, starts giving up this information. I mean, that is like. It's very BTK. Like just. Absolutely. I'm going to tell you how I bake a cake. Yeah. And yeah. He's basically, I'm going to tell you how I killed my victims. Right. Um. And then his uh, – I just made a note that his level of torture I feel like escalated from causing physical pain to incorporating the psychological pain. You know, even just the – the shaving of the hair is so demeaning. Right. You know, there's also been this, this – The piercing of the genitals. Yeah. yeah. The, you know, the torture and the control in and of itself. But then there's this – altering of who they are mm-hmm. um, and there's even been some speculation of like well was he trying to make them appear younger because of shaving the pubic area too and what's that about I, I don't know I mean they're, I yeah know. I mean Regina was 14 yeah they're already young, young and already. but it's you know I'm, I'm not sure that there was necessarily that part of his sexual deviance necessarily she was certainly sexually developed. Yeah, she's post-pubescent. She's post-pubescent. But the idea of, it's almost, I, mean, I just keep thinking paper doll. You know, uh, he's like know. changing and pl- mm-hmm. playing with appearances and seeing mm-hmm. what he can do because they're not real anymore. They're just right. objects and he gets to, you know, he gets to cause pain and then cause pain to their families. Uh, I know. What I was know. it? Did you look at the pictures of the journal? Like mm-hmm. he wrote in, in her journal, he wrote the boyfriend's name with a big bloody knife. Oh, through that's it. Right. I mean, and then kept it, you know, one of these sort of trophy things. Yeah. And well, they had, um, I believe they found her little notebook with her parents' phone, like her contact yeah. book. What did we used to call it? A phone black, book. A black book. A black book. A black book. Um, before we had a contacts app on our phone. So did you see the top three serial killer breakdown for jobs? No. What are they? So it's um, the top three skilled serial killer occupations, skilled. Is aircraft machinist assembler, shoemaker, or repair person, um, or an automobile upholsterer? Oh, huh. Okay, Top. so we have like foot or shoe fetish, foot fetish, maybe 
the shoemaker. Uh, well, certainly repair people are going to get access to people's homes, so that makes yes. sense. I don't know where automobile upholsterer comes from, except I will say a lot of automobile upholstery programs are taught in prisons. Interesting. Yeah, across the country, that's still. A big or they thing. know how to rip out upholstery, bloody upholstery, and then redo it. That is a where does very that come insightful. from? I just I all is that the like BuzzFeed? criminal patterns. It was it was a <laughs> it's a BuzzFeed list. BuzzFeed list. <laughs> um, <laughs> the top three semi-skilled serial killer occupations are forestry worker, arborist, truck driver, semi-skilled, semi-skilled. Or warehouse manager. I don't know. Arborist takes a lot of skill, in my opinion. Uh, seriously. Well, that's semi-skilled. We're not saying unskilled. No. I, semi-skilled, I yeah. think, is a under-rating of but that. But, the, yeah, then the top three professional um, or government-level serial killers um, are police or security official, military personnel, or a religious official. A I, religious I had no idea official. that they even were gathering data on this, but it's, it's well, very interesting. come on. Yeah. Well, those are people that are allowed to take people's lives. Yeah. Except religious official? Well, look what they're doing to, to kids. Um, very, very value, <laughs> you know, very vulnerable populations. It's very sad. Um, so do we want to talk about Jesperson? Yeah, you know, we should move on. We, yeah. we have taken a lot of time. I, and thank you for doing all that. That's fascinating. I will say it, it, we're going to focus the last part of, of this segment on something that really – mesmerized um, Shiloh and I for a number of reasons. But that's not to say that there's not some other unbelievably fascinating um, examples of trucker serial killers that are all over the web, even so far as to say BuzzFeed lists. But, um, right. And I, I hope with the, the uh, leaps and bounds in DNA that there's a lot of scared serial killing truckers yeah. out there. Yeah. Just, just drive your truck into a wall. Just drive it off a cliff right yeah. now. Yeah. Well, it was interesting reading and, and watching the um, some of the clips where they're interviewing truckers and they're interviewing female truckers. And, you know, look, it's one of those things where if you, you don't think about the infrastructure that supports your day-to-day life. Sure. And truckers, like, they were giving stats on if the trucking system broke down tomorrow – Big cities would starve within. I mean, if cities would fall apart because they are, they supply all the food, all all the supplies, and it's something that we don't think about how important it is um, because it's looked on as like sort of an un, semi-skilled blue-collar job. Yeah. When there's a lot of really great people out there, and and now with the ability to reach out to each other through the internet, several truckers have started their own support group and protective like they they try and get women out of prostitution and into rehabilitation programs i mean there's some real great effort being done out there yeah well they're the people to do it they're right there on the ground with them so um so so in jesperson yeah and talking about keith jesperson i I, we're not going to do a full recap of his crimes like we just did with Rhodes. Because if you want that, you can go to the podcast we're going to talk about, right. which is the Happy Face Killer podcast, which anyone listening to this, I'm sure, has um, picked up on that. But just just a little blurb. He's a Canadian-American serial killer who murdered eight women in the U.S. between January 1990. Wow, something about 1990. Yeah. Um, and March 1995. So he had a, a five-year um, span of doing this. But the podcast, the, the premise of it is um, his adult daughter, Melissa Moore, is um, essentially exploring not only his crimes, but um, 
you know, the psyche of a child that has grown up having to know this about her father and how she's still struggling with that um, today. So (coughs) I'm sorry. And he's called the um, happy face killer because he sent letters to the media and prosecutors and would draw a smiley face on there. So that's where that comes from. Um, Where do you want to start and just kind of talking about the podcast? Well, first I would would want to say that probably if you're listening to us, you have listened to happy face killer if you haven't i do highly recommend it it's um it's you know it's 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 a 10 episode arc the episodes are about 42 to 48 minutes it's an easy binge it's an easy binge um if you commute in la it's exactly (laughs) we we have an excuse for it um there's a lot of things that i think are important i think there's actually some really important things that are explored in it um, besides the fact that we're talking about something that's just brutal. I mean, you know, this guy was just, he is an absolute um, narcopath, a narcissistic sociopath. Um, there's some great things that are explored in it. Um, I, you know, look, you know, I, I ha- I'm a mouthy guy. I have a little, little bit of a filter. I'm going to try and stay very filtered about this because there are some things that I thought were really done poorly. Um, and I say that out of protection for anyone that has been traumatized is basically what I mean. So we're talking about an adult woman who's recounting. And this is the thing that to me is fascinating is that we get a young woman who recounts different aspects, perspectives, and chapters of her life. What was my life like as a child having this father? And she's able to really articulate the thing that most children do is, is I, you know, we, we idolize our parents. Mm-hmm. And Jesperson has some remarkable physical characteristics. He is a giant. The it's guy massive. is like pushing seven feet tall. Right. He was 300 pounds at the time. Any pictures you see of him, he dwarfs. Towers over everyone. He towers else. over everyone. Um, and what a, what a symbol of a, a protective father figure oh yeah you know just the massive size of him how could you not feel safe around him? right and 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 they she has you know she has wonderful memories and one of the things that i think is difficult for her and she she um she expresses and gives you visuals for is that's the struggle is trying to rectify this dialectic these two dichotomous experiences of this person was engaging in horrific acts and then cuddling with me on the couch and watching Unsolved Mysteries, mm-hmm. you know, and and that that to me was like one of the fascinating things about the show. Absolutely. Um, and then was it age fifteen when all of it blew up? Um, yeah, fourteen or fifteen. Okay, was when he was arrested. So you know he was a prolific killer, and when he was caught, he was caught, and um, this is someone I'm going to refer back to what we were talking about earlier is. Jesperson didn't want anybody taking credit for his kills. Right. In fact, the police were so hell-bent on closing one of the cases that they took the testimony of a developmentally disabled woman Mm -hmm. who implicated her boyfriend at the time. And herself. And herself, not really kind of because she had an impaired ability to understand consequences. And Jesperson's view is like, no, I don't want innocent people 
serving time for what I did. When we, the underlying motivation is no, you didn't want anybody taking credit right. for your kills. Yeah, I just did a hard eye roll for that one. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I could hear it. You could oh, probably hear it through I the know. lens. What is disturbing to listen to is that she. This is not her father didn't commit one crime and done. He committed a series of horrific crimes, and yet, like we know from an object relation standpoint, that there is a, a biological imperative and a psychological drive to cling to what you have internalized as your understanding of your protector, even though that person has done horrible things. Mm-hmm. And that's really what this podcast is about, is her struggling with that. Sure. And and also worrying, am I... You know, when you see, I have, I, I've been close to this person all my life. Am I this person? Right. I mean, that's sort of the ser- that's that's the basis of object relations is that we internalized, we internalized these images of our parents. We then have relationships with the internalized object of what we think our parent is. Well, now this poor woman has had that yanked out from underneath mm-hmm. her. It it pulls at her identity. Oh my God, am I a murderer as well? Right. right. Now that being said. Is it time to take the other? Yeah. Can I, can I go the other direction? No, please go the other direction. Okay. We, can, we can do this. We can tread we'll, we'll go back and forth. But here's the problem I have with it as a clinician is this young woman, and she's, well, she's a, a woman now, but as a young woman, she was horrifically traumatized. She, for some reason, at some point in her life, decides that she wants to try and get answers. So she pursues and continues a relationship with her father. And by relationship, I mean she communicates with him. And he is incredibly manipulative. He sends her contradictory messages over a decade. And even at one point, at one point, he tells her, you are just like me. Which, of course, traumatizes Mm -hmm. her even further. Mm -hmm. And... um, then there's another point um, where she begins her healing process. Her journey of healing is a particular road that I don't think was well thought out. And it was, uh, my opinion is that it's not really good for her in the long run. It's also an absolute end for her father, for Jesperson to come back and really excoriate her. Who do you think you are? You're nothing. You're nobody. Someone's stealing his spotlight again. Someone is stealing his spotlight. And what really um, concerns me is that, and, you know, there's parts of this individual's life that we have no insight into. I don't know if she received counseling. I don't know if she received a trauma protocol at any point in her life. But I'll tell you this. It doesn't sound like anybody gave her advice on how to do this because – with professional support. With help. professional support. Right, meaning therapeutic. And frankly, I'm, I, I, I'm flabbergasted at the producer of this podcast. And who knows, maybe I'm painting myself into a corner and I won't be able to do business with these people. I hope it's not that. But, you know, either you're a producer or you're a best pal or you're a counselor. And let right. me tell you, you're not a counselor. So stay in – I'm going to use the, a current term. Stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. Yeah. Because there's commentary that steps outside the boundaries of journalistic integrity, Mm -hmm. I feel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, look, when I'm working with someone who's traumatized, in the same way I'm working with some, if I'm working with someone who is maybe experiencing psychosis or a psychotic episode, the one thing, the rule is we don't escalate it. 
right? Right. I'm not going to tell somebody, hey, calm down, or hey, that's not real. I'm not going to deny them their experience. I'm going to help guide them through a healthy expression of that, but I'm not going to encourage that. And I felt like that was what was done mm-hmm. here. So that's my rant. Okay. And I'm sure I'll have more commentary. But I was really concerned for her, and and you can't you can't listen to this. And sometimes it even gets to the point where you you kind of lose a little sympathy. I, her, I felt I that too. I felt a lot of ups and downs. It starts off, you know, you'd, I liked the twist of it, that this was going to be told from her perspective. And I thought, you know, she had first, she wrote her book 10 years ago. Yeah. So I expected maybe for her to have worked through some of this stuff over the last 10 years. If, if that was kind of the start of her healing process, hopefully it was much sooner than that. But if she chooses to start this chapter of a healing process in, I'm going to confront this head on, write a book about it, go on Dr. Phil, go on Oprah, you know, kind of expose myself to the world with my experience. To me, it felt just as raw as maybe as it would have been 10 years ago. And I didn't know what to make of that. Either she hasn't worked through it or it's contrived that's the question for right? the podcast, right. which was, you know, obviously done fairly recently. And as a listener, I don't think you want to be put in that position. No, it, it yeah, it, it was confusing. It was confusing. Um, and then, I don't know. I, I I think I'm just left sort of confused by her motivations and what she is doing to be re-traumatized. Trauma can reprogram the gr- brain. Right. You know, know I mean, one one of the or or um, uh, high intensity experiences can can reprogram the reprogram the brain. So, look, I don't know what's what's going on. I I do express a lot of concern for this emotional re-traumatization and reliving it. And like you said, what was done? Has anything been done? You know, because it seems pretty fresh. It does. So it's either fresh or it's contrived. Right. I'm not judging the contrived because – but I will say this on the other side of it. I mean she talks about, you know, she's been excoriated online because there are a lot of trolls online. Sure. But I'm not sure that the approach that you're taking for your journey is helping it. So like at some point help working with a counselor to work through it. Like, well, what is my stance going to be? I'm going to own my wound. This is who I – this is part of my identity. I'm going to work through it. But and 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 fuck the fuck the people that criticize me. Yeah. That being said, what you sent me today blew that out of the water. So you want to tell me what you said? Okay, I just want to make sure I have the right. So is this the the true crime daily thing that I sent you? Uh, it was the one after that. The one after that. The the magazine cover. Oh, okay. So that being said, and hang on, I want to read my exact text to you. I wrote, here comes another one, dot, yeah. dot, dot. So, By the way, folks, if anybody ever gets access to our, what, our not, text our not, literally a nine-year-long oh God. Text, text history. Thread. Jeez. Um, so February 4th issue of People that's going to be coming out um, is a story raised by a serial killer, and it's the daughter of BTK has written her own book. Okay. So when she she was 26 when she learned about her dad. So she was a bit older. So yeah, I I don't know if this is going to end up 
being a trend and how far how long that trend will go i'm not sure and and i think you know going back to melissa um I mean, look. It's I feel in this- like it. It feel like it comes from a place of protection in a way of yeah. you know, as a therapist. And when I saw that, you know, they have her as like this special correspondent on this YouTube crime channel called True Crime Daily. I think Chris Hansen started it or something. But one of her dad's victims that survived was recently <laughs> was recently arrested for stabbing her boyfriend, Mm -hmm. they send Melissa out as a correspondent to go interview her. Okay. I am sorry. I did not have time to look at that this today. I didn't realize that's what that was. And so she's actually doing this interview and, uh, you know, about the time this victim spent with her father. And it's just, I don't know. There's just, there's too much crossover that to where it it felt gross. It felt, um, again, from a place, again, of protection where you should not be putting yourself through What is the benefit? I don't know. What, other than, other than if it bleeds, it leads television. And that's what what I go back to is these producers that I'm just like, really? You know, one of the things that happens in the, in the, um, in the podcast that I think turned out well. And it's something that, um, you know, there, there are several organizations in, in the U.S. and around the world that seek to, uh, seek to reach a place of reconciliation and forgiveness between um, perpetrators of crimes and their victims or perpetrators of crimes and the family of their victims. And it's there some, some absolutely amazing mm-hmm. transformations mm-hmm. And, and, and personal evolutions can come out of these things. So as an example, she goes to meet with the son of her father's last victim, right? Right. Okay, so last victim who was murdered. And this guy, his life was horrifically impacted by his mother's death. I mean, it was – and he expresses himself really well. And I don't – whatever he's done on his journey, which seems like a lot of introspection and – Self-help. Mm-hmm. He's done a great deal of like, obviously he's a yogi, yeah. you know, he's a self-study in, in this stuff. And um, he ends up taking care of her right. emotions in many senses. And look, good for you that you evolved to a place where you have that level of, you know, Kuan Yin level of compassion. Mm-hmm. That's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. That is gorgeous. But there's a part at which, you know, that he's really taking care of her emotionally in several conversations that I, I had really strong reactions to like, why is this happening? Right. Why is this happening? And yeah, it, it left me disturbed. Yeah. Yeah. Overall, I would say it was good. And if you haven't listened to it, listen to it. Um, but it left me feeling a bunch of feelings. (laughs) I, I know. One of the things that he says, you know, they're trying to figure things out. And it's, I mean, I do like the idea that you're a fly on the wall of this conversation between these two people trying to make sense of something that is absolutely senseless. I mean, that, that's fascinating to me, but so much of it is, is off. Like one of the statements he made about, uh, Jesperson, you know, his, his life is terrible. He has, you know, he is being punished. He has nothing. He has no love. He knows he's all alone. And, you know, look, if, if, if you, if that's what you need to create in your psyche so that you get some comfort knowing that there is some kind of justice in the world, that's okay. But that's not the objective truth, right? you know, because 
A, the guy has created a comfortable life for himself in prison, relatively comfortable. He's there for the rest of his life. He's adjusted. He's just doing his time. Not to say that there aren't challenges, but the, the foundation of that argument also is he is a sociopath. He does not care. Right. He doesn't care about anything for himself. He's not suffering because he's not capable of that level of suffering that if we're anything, making. Yeah. For the last 10 years, there's been a book written about him. There's been numerous TV shows, Just podcasts. feeding it. Just feeding it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was that was one of the things that concerned me. Um, what was the other thing? They do a, a really interesting thing where um, she she is able to get some relief. She's so worried about oh, right. the idea because Jesperson was revealed to have had uh, a traumatic brain injury as a, a sports injury when he was in high school. And it was noted that he had had behavioral, cha- behavioral and impulse control changes after that injury. And there's a supposition that there was an underlying organic psychopathy that was really triggered by the TBI as well as being put into an environment where he was able to live out these fantasies. So she goes to basically the expert in this area who has written a lot to get the um, brain scan so that she can learn if she, and because they're looking at what areas of the brain light up. Right. And she gets Dr. James Fallon. I love it. Uh, Jimmy Fallon. Yeah. (laughs) Neuroscientist. (laughs) And if you don't know Dr. James Fallon, there's been articles written about him in the New Yorker, New York times. He is a a research neurologist. Yeah. He's a neurologist, and he is a card-carrying sociopath. Right, psychopath. He, psychopath. So he oh, has, yeah, he does. He hits the psychopath scale, doesn't yeah. he? Right. So he has the um, the brain markers and the DNA marker, the genetic markers for it. He just didn't have. He didn't have severe the severe childhood trauma. He didn't have the severe trauma. Oh, that's the other thing about Jesperson is right. that I'm sorry, and I should have been saying Melissa's name all along. Melissa does know that she not only witnessed interactions and was her grandfather tried to molest her as a child as well, right. is that her father gave examples of really how badly he was beaten. Sure. So we've got genetic markers, traumatic brain injury, um, hostile and severe childhood trauma. The trifecta. Just horrible, horrible um, trifecta. And what Dr. Fallon is able to say is like, I had all those markers except for didn't have brain injury. And I had a great loving family. Yep. So I'm a bit of a risk taker. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. It's really it's so interesting. Like I like to get people to do things that were dangerous, and he's yeah. kind of saying it in a jolly manner. Right. Like, oh, that's going. He's creepy. totally a jolly guy. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, she goes to him. He does the brain scan and says, "Look, your brain is completely normal." Yeah. And that seemed to be, I mean, huge for her. I think you know. I don't. I don't think that's a bad thing to sort of, you know, challenge her belief system or. Or some of no, those, I mean, um, like I, I could, I could relate. Like, wouldn't any of us love to know? Wouldn't we love to be brave enough and be able to go in and get to to get a, a medical test that says you're never going to have dementia, right? Or you're you're never going to have heart disease, oh, gosh. you know? But it the is very but brave. the other side of it is is that you could get the answer like, mm, no, mm-hmm. you've got all the markers. It's going to happen. Mm-hmm. I hope you're going to be prepared, Oof. you know, because you still have to live your life, yep. right? Yeah, um, yeah. What was the one more thing? Okay, one more thing. One more um, thing. Since we're Did on the roll. Did you make notes? Are you just memorizing all of this? I made a couple of notes. But, like, <laughs> what I do is, like, I have a weird memory. So I have bullet points and I have words and the words make me remember. So what's my bullet point? Photo. Oh, 
Okay, because we both looked at the photo. Right. It's online. Um, and I, I don't want to ruin the podcast for you because I really want people to listen to it because I think it's fascinating. Is at one point, uh, Melissa is married and has a child. Couple of kids. Couple of kids. And um, they go to visit her dad in prison. The whole family. I have a, like, I, I can barely form an opinion about this because, once again, I go back to who was providing that young woman with support and who was giving her, you know, uh, nurturing and containment and who was just, who was there advising her. Right. Now, what I don't know from the outside, from the way that story is told, I don't know that somebody didn't say, Yeah, it's a great idea. Go or do it. or no, or no, don't do it. That's right. a horrible idea. And she's like, no, I have to do this for me. Sure, but it is jarring to look at that photo and see this seven foot, three hundred pound man in his prison blues, in his prison blues, who has brutally murdered eight women or more. Uh huh. Oh, sure, sure. Um, standing a- around his children. Yeah, she's got her kid on her hip. And- yeah. So once again, that idea, that concept mm. of like, this is my family. I ha- I have to connect. No, you don't have to connect. Right. You don't. You don't have to. In fact, right. that may be part of the thing that is providing this this feeding of re trauma. That's right. where I get concerned. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. This is a heavy topic. Yeah. All the way I was around. really, I was really like kind of stunned as I was listening to it. There were a couple of times I was like, Whoa. So you had sent, right when we talked about this, you had sent me an article that were like, ooh, is this the new uh, serial killer mode, some sort of mode of transport <laughs> of this era? And it was an article about an Uber driver charged with six, killing six strangers in between giving rides to people. Um, so this happened... Actually, he pled guilty in January this year in Michigan um, in, I guess, the Kalamazoo area in 2016. He murdered eight people, four women, a man, and a 17-year-old boy. So this guy, Dalton, is his last name. Um, Police quoted him as saying that a devil figure was on Uber's app commanding him to kill on the day of the shooting. So this was all in one day. This wasn't like... Throughout his Uber career. Wait, he did, he killed all those people in the same yep. day? Yep. Whoa. Yep. I did not see that. Yeah. So, um, but he was eventually found competent to stand trial um, and dropped the, the insanity defense. So he ended up um, pleading and um, he said he wanted to spare the families more grief during the trial. So I don't think his devil figure on the app worked out. Defense worked out so well. It didn't, and you know, and I don't know what's you know, going on there. Look, I don't know anything else about that, but I'm, you know, my gut tells me that there was meth involved. <laughs> <laughs> you know that, like, let's see, Michigan. Yeah, I don't. Know. I mean, I who knows? Um, I'd also <laughs> say that I think it's interesting because, like, you know, the what grabs you about that is that it's an Uber driver, but that doesn't necessarily correlate to. Um, access to victims or that we know of because we could if we had stats on it we might be able to look at any number of taxi drivers that oh, were totally. killing people on their time off yeah. you know we don't know no it was kind of a silly uh, comparison yeah. like ooh is this a new uh, <laughs> new trucker trend is uber trend but no def- totally different MO and everything yeah. so 
All right. Well, we are going to bring you a point five episode that's going to be released very soon. Um, February has a lot of exciting things coming out. Um, and yeah, we're going to stick with our timeline, keep cranking out a couple a month. And before you know it, it will be July and we'll be at the True Crime Podcast we Festival want to see everybody. in please Chicago. Come. Yeah. Yeah, please come out. So many other great podcasts are um, now going to be there. Missing Maura Murray is going to be there, which I'm super excited about. Uh, i got to re- watch that again. That was yeah. really good. Yeah. Um, I've listened to so many episodes of that podcast because they have so many that I need to see these guys in person <laughs> just because I've listened to their voices for so long. Okay, I was about to start a whole other conversation. Nope, nope. We'll, no, don't we'll do have it. To save we'll it. save sorry. it. Um, Otherwise, you know, please give a listen to the Getting Off podcast as well. Please. You will, if you enjoy us, you'll enjoy them. Nick and Jessa are great, um, and hopefully, we will be collaborating in some fashion in the future with them. So, um, anyway, this has been LA, not so confidential. Bye, folks. We'll Bye-bye. see you soon.